is living an active word into our lives as we expect for what God is going to say to us this evening. Lord, thank you for, for Lydia, the way you've, you've created her and made her to dig into Scripture, to seek after your heart and to put before us what it is you're saying from them, there, then, to us here, now. We pray, Holy Spirit, you enable us to kind of bridge that gap, that as we see what you are doing in and through Nehemiah, you speak to us in our situation, in our context, with a view to shaping us more and more into your plans and purposes. So bless Lydia, Lord, free her, so this evening, release her, Lord, speak through her. In Jesus' name. Um, guys, if you are, um, if you're new or visiting, um, we have been taking a journey through Nehemiah, and if you've been with us a while, you will be pleased to know that we've got to chapter eight, and the wall is rebuilt. So we're getting somewhere, aren't we? Well done, Nehemiah. Hang on, I'm just going to move some things. Um, so we're in chapter eight, which is page four hundred and seventy-three in your green Bible. So that's Nehemiah um, chapter eight. And what we're going to do this evening is um, we're going to work through the text and we're going to see that there's two things going on. That there's a call to holiness and there's a challenge to really wrestle and embed ourselves in scripture. And that embedding ourselves in scripture is about kind of looking back into it, as the Israelites do in this chapter, in order to look forward and to um, fuel our lives that kind of eternal vision of who the Lord is. Um, but before we um, kind of nestle into the text, I thought it'd be good to orientate ourselves. So I've got a kind of 1970s style PowerPoint here. <laughs> Can anyone actually see this? If you're on the front row, you're doing well. Um, okay, so what, what's going on with the way it's kind of physically placed in the Old Testament. It looks like it's kind of maybe in the middle of Scripture, and actually Nehemiah is the final book of the Old Testament, apart from the prophet Malachi. But in terms of sort of the history books and things, um, Nehemiah is the final book of the Old Testament. And what's happened is that we've creation in Genesis, so uh, God's created the world, he's created humankind in his likeness, Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, um, we see the fall of and then you get the kind of story of Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Noah, all of that, and the rest of Genesis. And then, and most importantly for us this evening, um, the story picks up the person of Moses in about 2000 BC. In about 2000 BC, Moses is called by God to bring the people out of slavery, the Israelite people, to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And God gives Moses the book of the law. And that's recorded in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus and then Exodus and Numbers have also put the kind of narrative around that call. So we're going to be anchoring ourselves a tiny bit here in um, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the book of the law that will be expressed in these verses of Nehemiah this evening. Um, and then what happens between about 2000 uh, BC and 1000 BC? You've got a period of the judges, and that's recorded um, in the book of Joshua and Judges. So that's Israel establishing themselves in the land, the building of Jerusalem, the city walls, the temple, all of that stuff. But they don't have a king. And then about 1000 BC, the Israelites start looking to the nations around them. And they say to God, we want to be like the nations around us. Give us a king. So first of all, um, God gives them king Saul. He starts off quite well and then turns out to be a bit rubbish. 
rubbish. So he's replaced by um, King David, who does a pretty good job, apart from the whole bit with Bathsheba. And, and then King Solomon also does a kind of good job until he sort of becomes undone too. And that's a kind of golden era of Israel. This city under the kings, David and Solomon. And then between 1000 BC and about 597, things basically start to go from bad to worse. Because with the exception of a couple of kings, like Hezekiah and Josiah, the kings are pretty bad. And injustice is right. And so what happens is that God sends prophets, and he sends prophets to Israel. He says, this is my heart. Remember Deuteronomy. Remember the book of the law. Remember my ways. Turn back to my ways, and you will flourish as a nation. But if you don't, calamity is coming. And the calamity does come, because Israel do not remember the law of God. And the law of God is expressed in two things. No idolatry, so worship the Lord your God only. Israel keep worshipping other gods around, who are pretty horrendous gods actually. Their child sacrifice and horrendous stuff instead of um, worshipping the one true God. So no idolatry and no injustice. And Israel ignore that too. And Israel is a nation where injustice is rife, and the rich are getting richer, and the poor are getting poorer. And so eventually, in 597, the calamity does come. And the Babylonians, um, they invade Israel, they burn down the city, the temple is burned down, the city walls are broken down. And the Israelites, the ruling elite of the Israelites, are carried off into exile. But even in exile, God doesn't leave them. Actually, he sends prophets, he sends Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And they say to the people, this is going to be okay. This is going to be okay. Your God, God is faithful. And he will redeem this situation. And so by the night, God says a heart, the Emperor Cyrus, and he says to the Israelites, you can go home. You can go back to your land and you can start to rebuild. And before the end of it, gets back in 445, we have a chap called Ezra, he returns, and Ezra is concerned with um, the kind of spiritual things that Ezra returns, and he rebuilds the temple, and he begins to talk about the word of the Lord, this Deuteronomy, this Leviticus, this Old Testament, scriptural reality, the heart of the living God, and he begins to say, we need to get back to this. And then Nehemiah comes along in 445, and he deals with the civil realities. And so what we see by the time that we get to our chapter, chapter 8 of Nehemiah, is that Nehemiah's been called. We've had these kind of early beginnings. There's been a building of the wall. There's been a lot of opposition. And we've seen his heart for justice that Lucy spoke to last week. And we've seen that the wall is completed. And then in chapter 8, Israel is there. And they've got what they have been longing for. They are back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. They've got the word of God. They've got a city wall. Things are looking good. And so what's their question? And their question is, now that this wall has been restored, now that our city has been restored, what are we doing? And how are we going to live? And it's all found in those two things of no idolatry and no injustice. And so they look back to look forward into the word of God. So let's read the word of God together. Um, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 
and there's some very Old Testament names in this, so um, I will do my best. So, Nehemiah chapter uh, 8, verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, that spiritual leader who has rebuilt the temple, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. So that's scripture, that's Old Testament scripture, that's Deuteronomy, that's Leviticus, it's Exodus, it's Genesis, it's everything that they've got hold of, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. Just hold that refrain for a moment. All who were able to understand. And that refrain comes again and again in this chapter, that actually scripture is meant to be understood. That it's God-breathed, it's alive, it's active, it's eternally relevant, and the Lord calls us to wrestle with it and to understand it. All who were able to understand. Verse 3. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Possibly an argument for pulpits there, but we'll talk about that another time. Beside him, on his right, stood Matahavaya, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkai, and Masiah. And on his left were Padiah, Michelle, Malkajar, Hashem, Hashabadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm dyslexic, so that's like very difficult. <laughs> thank you, Tim. Ezra, opened the book. Oh no, we're somewhere else. I got lost there. Sorry. No. Oh, we are there. Great. Verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra, praise the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Let's pause there for a moment. What is that? That's worship. That's no idolatry. That's Israel standing before God and saying, actually, we repent of the deeds of our ancestors. We are not going to be that people group anymore. We are not going to be a people group who worship other gods. We know that we need to worship you. We know that our relationship with you is paramount. And so we will begin. We will begin in worship. They worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites listed there, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Again, understanding scripture, wrestling with it. That's an important challenge to me and Tim and other people who preach. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy. This day is holy. There's the call, this refrain of holiness that comes through this chapter. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go! and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
pause there for a moment. There's an equation there that holiness equals joy, which equals strength. And how often, I do this in my own life, I kind of think of holiness, I think, it just kind of sounds a bit dull. It's not true. It's not true. Holiness is our strength and it's our joy. And it's all about the joy of the Lord. So we're going to tuck into that in a moment. Verse 11. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Pause there for a moment. So we've had the worship of the living God. We've had no idolatry in this chapter. And here we see no injustice. Actually, this is about full equality. Here, there's no rich or poor. There's no divide. All the Israelites gather and they celebrate and they rejoice and they eat together. They're standing now as a nation saying, actually, we're not going to be part of our former ways. We're going to be a nation of justice. In this chapter, at least, they are a nation that worships God and is full of justice and equality. Verse 13. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. There's a lot of detail here, so just go with me. And they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, and this is the important bit, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. The point here isn't so much the shelters made out of the branches and the olive trees. The point is that the Israelites are looking back to look forward. And so they're looking back to their early life, to the giving of the law under Moses, and then their rule under Joshua as their leader. And they're saying, yes, yes, let's get back to those first things in order to move forward, knowing that God is faithful, knowing that his ways are perfect. And they celebrate in a way that hasn't been seen for hundreds of years. And then it concludes. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Great stuff. So where does, where does that take us right now? 2019. There's a call to holiness, and there is a challenge to take the word of the Lord so, so seriously, just as Israel are doing right here. And that subtle thing through verses 9, 10, 11 of holiness is something that we have to take seriously. Um, and what, why do we take holiness seriously? And what earth is holiness? We know, if we go back to Genesis, that we're made in the image of God. And God is holy. 
Holiness is his nature, and his nature is holiness. And what holiness is, is everything that is good and right and pure and love and freedom and joy and just stuff that we know in our gut. We're like, yes, justice. That is all God-given, and that's part of his nature and part of his holiness. But we're made in the image of the living God. We are image bearers. We've been bestowed with this infinite dignity his hands and feet on this earth. And so we were made to be a holy people. One Peter, holy people, a royal priesthood, reflecting his praises on this earth. We were made with that dignity to reflect a holy God as his holy people. And of course we know in Genesis chapter 3 that something went wrong. But it went wrong after the Lord looked at us and said, you are good. You are good. You are humanity. You are men and women made in my image. And so the primary, primary thing of our DNA is not sin and it's not the fall as much as that affects each and every one of us. But it's holiness and it's image bearers. And Simon Ponsonby, he's a great theologian based in Oxford, he puts it like this. He says, sinfulness, though universal, is not natural to humankind. It entered with the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Sinfulness, though universal, is not natural to humankind. Actually, what is natural to us, what we were originally created for, was the opposite of sin, holiness. Holiness. And ever since this went wrong, God has been pursuing us. And he's pursuing the Israelites as chosen people throughout the Old Testament. They're getting it wrong again and again and again and again. He just doesn't let them go probably people and things that they're calling about themselves. And eventually, eventually, restoration comes in the person of Jesus Christ and we sit under and in the cross. How much more liberty have we got to cry these things than the Israelites were crying? To know his holiness, to wrestle with his scriptures. Because we've got it in Jesus. Jesus Christ. Sinfulness is not our natural state. Actually, holiness is. So that means that where in the book of the law, where in scripture, there's an instruction to holiness, although it is challenging, it's also possible. It's a dynamic reality. So God calls the people of Israel, he calls us way back in Leviticus, right at the beginning, Leviticus 19.2, be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. And that's a reality we can enter into. And holiness is living his way. And it is about joy and about freedom. It's not a bore. And Simon Ponsonby goes on to say, holiness is a return to Eden's ideal and a taste of paradise. The holy life is a foretaste of heaven on earth. It's not God's burden for us but God's best for us. It's not God's burden for us. It's God's best for us. And we come to it as Nehemiah did in chapter one, through repentance and through weeping and through confession, by saying, you know what, Lord, I did get it wrong. I bring myself to you. But we don't stay in that place. We move into that place of joy and of freedom, wrestling out holiness. So what does it look like? Well, it goes back to those two poles of no idolatry and no injustice. And in the no idolatry thing, 
we're worshipping. It's not that God's insecure or he desperately needs our worship, though he loves it because he loves a relationship with us. And our worship is our way of expressing our relationship with God and re-instigating that kind of Genesis 1 and 2 reality of closeness <coughs> with the Lord Jesus Christ and closeness with the Father and the closeness with the Spirit. But God knows how he's made us and he knows what is best for us. And he knows he's made us as worshippers. And if we don't worship him, we don't stop worshipping him. We just worship something else. And we end up worshipping our lives and our relationships and our possessions and things that are finite and are not eternal. And he says, no, no, no. Come into freedom. Come and worship the author of life. Come and know me. Come and walk with me. That's what worship is all about. And so the first thing we do to walk out this holiness is to walk out our relationship with him and to surrender ourselves in worship. And that, that's sung worship and that's prayer and that's confession and that's repentance. It's all of it. It's your life on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning. We come to the living God. And then there's no injustice. There's no injustice. Because the thing about injustice is that it's relationship with each other gone wrong. So we're made for a relationship with God, but we're also made for a relationship with each other. And every time you open up your news feed or you see that story, you hear that thing and you're like, that is so wrong. That's so wrong. When you get to the nub of it, it's always one person choosing themselves over another in some way, shape or form. It's relationship with each other and with the creation gone wrong. So holiness is also about us choosing each other and choosing the planet and saying, actually, I'm going to walk out of my sin-filled kind of personal autonomy, my way attitude and I'm going to walk into a posture that looks up to God and looks out to the people and the world around me. So why Jesus, Jesus, Matthew 22, what does he say? He's asked what the greatest commandment is. The Pharisees are trying to trick him. And he looks at them and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. Worship. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Justice. And guys, we're meant to look different. We are his hands and feet. We are those who know the living God. We are prophetic signposts to this, to him, to the world to come. And if any of you are sitting in this room this evening and you're feeling like, you know what, sometimes in my life, in my friendships, in my workplace, I feel a bit like the odd one out, almost a little bit of a misfit. I think the Lord would say to you, actually, that's okay. In fact, that's a good thing. We are meant to be conforming ourselves to Jesus Christ, not the world. Men are look different. And we hold each other up in that. And so the challenge with holiness is to attend to, to our personal holiness. Attend to your relationship with God. Attend to the way that you treat others. Watch your speech, your thought life, your habits, your relationships, your attitude to challenge. As I know in my own life that when I'm feeling a bit sheepish, 
um, I'm a bit unholy or a bit defensive. I don't like people challenging me. And that's a litmus test that actually things aren't going so well. How are we doing on challenge? Who have we got who is speaking into our lives? We do this together. Are we happy to do this as church? And as we attend to our personal holiness, then we attend to our corporate holiness. We attend to ourselves as church, as his hands and feet. And so we become a prayerful church. Actually, what we were doing on Tuesday evening in presence was brilliant because we were a church that was gathering together to pray and then to get out there and be, be a people out there. We're socially engaged. And as church, we study the scriptures, we listen to the Spirit, and we do it all for the sake of the world. Which lands us in the final bit that's drawn out of these verses, and that's the how. The how. And the how is to, to take this seriously, to take scripture seriously. That's what was going on for the Israelites. Said, okay, we're going to wrestle with the book of the law. We're going to wrestle with scripture. They looked back into this, which is God breathed, living and active, sharper than a double edged sword, piercing to bone and marrow. And in that, they were propelled forward. And they had the potential to be a people group who flourished. So for each of us this evening, I think the Lord wants to say, actually, Where are you at with my book? Where are you at with my word? Is it a bedrock? Actually, if you read something in scripture and it nudges you and it challenges you and it's a little bit uncomfortable, are you ready to conform yourselves to that rather than to the world? Are you ready to take this seriously? How's your reading of scripture? You'll wrestle with it that's where the Israelites were at. Um, I was trying to come up with a story to illustrate some of this, and I was chatting to Ruth, and she was like, um, that's like your story? And I was like, oh, yes, that is the story. Um, and I, you know, I grew up um, in a Christian home, and, and I knew the Lord, um, but I knew the Lord in a very kind of experiential, Holy Spirit, uber-charismatic way, if I was honest. Um, and I just didn't read the Bible. Um, I found it a bit dull and I didn't really understand it and I tried to solve my youth Bible, it didn't quite work for me. Um, and I was probably about 14. Um, and then what happened was I just didn't, I didn't have the bedrock, I didn't have the Word of God. And I just turned into a reckless teenager and young adult who had absolutely no interest in God, Christian things, etc. and got myself into all sorts of things I should have been doing. Um, and then I came, I came back to faith at university. And I still remember what happened. I was like a screaming, crying person, a soul survivor. He's like, I'm so sorry, Jesus, all good. And all of that. And it was a work of the spirit. But the most extraordinary thing happened. I basically woke up. I was like, go to read the Bible. And I read the whole New Testament in two weeks. And that is not to freak myself up. I just I couldn't stop. All I could do was read scripture. And it's been like that ever since. And not, not that good. No, it's not that good at all, actually. Um, but there's been something since then that has so grounded me that's meant that I haven't wavered in that kind of fundamental way like it did before. This has grounded me, and it's changed me, and it's constantly changing me. And I've been reading it well for whatever it is, about 14 years now. And I love it. It's got so much more to say to me. How are we doing with scripture? How do you know God's word that changes us?
Okay. So this evening, I think that's what he wants to do in each and every one of us. We'll all be at different points, there'll be different things that are kind of hit of home for us. But he wants to speak to us about holiness and about his word. And so if you're okay with that, can we all stand together? I'm just going to wait on the Lord. Um, I know it's really warm in here. Um, so if you need to get some space, um, please do. Please fan yourself for a second. Hold on stretch. each of us to come before the Lord now, in whatever way that looks like for you. For some of us, we might be putting our hands out in front just as an act of surrender. For others of us, we might just need to, to stand. For others of us, we might find ourselves in a place of kneeling. All this right before him. And to just say to the Lord, here I am. Here I am. <laughs> what do you want to say? 